Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Isn't the gospel great news? Now we need to hear it every week, time and time again, the depth of the Savior's love for us. Well, this is one of those great passages of Scripture, John, uh, Luke chapter 15. It's like John 3:16 and Romans 8. Just this glorious depiction of our, sa- our salvation in Jesus Christ and a recalibration of our hearts and our, and our expectations. Isn't it true that every week we need to be recalibrated, brought back into line with the gospel? We get frustrated with ourselves. We get frustrated with the people around us. We get frustrated with this world. And then we get back here and reminded that God who has sent his son into the world is not frustrated in saving us. He is abundant in mercy and and loving kindness and compassion. And so we need to be reminded that all the time. When I was a wee lad, I used to play baseball in a park a couple of streets away from where I lived. It was LaMarche Park. And when we played ball, the guys would all get together and the diamond was set up so that when you face the outfield on the right side or center right to right field, there were two properties, two houses with chain link fences. And the rule was that if you could hit it out over the fence, it was an automatic home run, just like in pro ball. If you hit it over the wall, you can kind of jog around and uh, feel triumphant for a little bit. But there was a little trick when I was growing up. The one property, kind of center right field, was uh, owned by a man, an old man named Friday Edwards. And uh, Friday Edwards had a bit of reputation amongst us young guys, and it was because someone had told the story that on one occasion when the ball got hit over, Friday Edwards stood inside his door till some kid jumped over the fence and went to get the ball, and Friday came running out. And the, the legend changed a little bit. I don't know if he just took the ball and kept it, or if he took the kid and kept it. <laughs> but we had this kind of fearsome story of Friday Edwards. So you got up there and you really wanted to hit it. But the rule was, if you hit the ball over Friday Edwards' fence, you had to go get the ball. <laughs> you could run around and get the home run, but you had to go get the ball. So we all kind of grew up with this image of Friday Edwards. And, and uh, I, I always thought in the park that I, I would look over and you could see his curtains were just a, a bit open in this back window there. And I thought he's standing there waiting <laughs> you know, for it to happen. And then one day, uh, Friday Edwards died. And I heard the obituary and then I found out he had grandchildren and family and I realized that he wasn't the legend that I had heard him to be. He wasn't the man that we had envisioned him to be. It worked for the baseball uh, lore but it wasn't actually the man who lived in the house street and a half over from where I grew up. Now I say that because when we come to Luke chapter 15 Jesus is doing a corrective, a theological corrective. 
The Pharisees and the scribes are seeing sinners come to Jesus. And their expectation is what? That somehow God would be offended by this. Somehow this is an offense to God. And Jesus in these parables, these powerful parables, is realigning, recorrecting, speaking as the son about his father, one who has come from heaven, about heaven, and he's telling them God loves to forgive and save sinners. Isn't that glorious good news? That's what the Lord loves to do. I want to... uh, ask you another question just to kind of track us into where we're going. You ever had one of those nights where you're really tired and you have to get up early to go to work the next day and your neighbor decides it's a good night to have a party? Maybe it's fireworks. You know, I used to think, you know, 4th of July is when you have fireworks, but I realized at least in Waconia, whenever you can have fireworks, people have fireworks. You know, firing them off, whatever. And I look at Marianne and go, I have no idea. <laughs> Uh, somebody's birthday, some kind of party. I'm missing something, you know. But you go to bed at night and you think, man, don't they know i got to work in the morning? Don't they know I have an exam tomorrow? Don't they know that i got to get up early and get going? And so we think, you know, these just people have no concern, no awareness. Let me just ask you this. What if you heard that the reason why all this carrying on is going on is because someone just got cleared after a battle with breast cancer? Or what if you heard that a son who had gone off to serve in a war had come back unscathed? Or what if you heard that a child who had been lost was found? Don't you think that would just change your attitude a little bit? You might actually go out and congratulate them. You might say, thank you, God, that you have shown such mercy. Here Jesus is in this passage of scripture and as he is encountering the Pharisees and the scribes, they are angry, they are upset, they are responding to the fact that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And what Luke is doing, and I believe what Jesus is doing, is he's holding up two different groups of people. There are the grumblers and there are the partiers, right? There's the complainers and the celebrators. And in this text of scripture, Jesus is essentially saying, and Luke is essentially saying to us, which group are you going to be part of? What are you going to be like? Are you going to be the grumbler and the complainer? Are you going to be the rejoicer and the celebrator? And as we read through this text of scripture, all of us need to do a little heart examining. On one hand, if you've come in here today and think you're beyond reach and you just have this vision of God, this narrative that God is a Friday Edwards just waiting to jump on you, I got good news for you. God loves to receive sinners, broken people, wounded people. And if you came in with all the, if you were reluctant to come in today, let me tell you, the Father is glad you're here. And he warmly welcomes you. And I just want you to bask in that today. Jesus wants you to know how gracious, compassionate, and forgiving and welcoming the Father is. But if you've come in grumbly, just Christians have been driving you nuts, which is prone to happen, just so you know. People, you've just kind of gone into this place where you just feel unhappy and uncomfortable and grumbly. Let me just ask you a question. Could it be that you've lost your vision for what God is doing in this world. I might even say it this way, maybe you need to spend a little more time with non-Christians. 
with people who need the Lord. To remind yourself in the middle of this why we're here that God has come into the world to save and to forgive sinners and to recalibrate that because if we in our own hearts and minds are sitting there going, what's wrong with people? It could be the grumbling inside is that not only do we think God aligns with us, now here's the danger. We think God aligns with us when we think, what's the matter with all these people and what's going on? But the other problem that comes into our heads is that ricochets off the wall and hits you all the time. Because if God is a grumpy old God, unwilling to forgive sinners, when you put your head on the pillow at night, there's a little fear inside. Maybe there's no room for me. Right? That's when Gabe's song that he just sang, there's that, there's that self-examining that goes on in my heart. And when we're honest with our hearts, we are Hosea's Gomer. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's one question I want you to think about today. Could it be that one of the reasons some of us have lost our joy as a believer is that we've lost our drive to see and to celebrate the salvation of others? And we need to ask God to rekindle that, to ask God to do that. You got that? Maybe the reason I'm not joyful is I forgot what God is doing, what God is up to, what it's really like in heaven. And we need another story than this legend we've built up in our heads, this attitude that we've got going there. God, help us. That's what Luke 15 is going to do, the glory of God, the joy of God in salvation. I want you to have that joy today. Don't you? Don't you long for that? So here's where we're going to start. Let's look at Luke chapter 15, verse 1. I've called the first part of this, this first sentence, an exciting, the exciting scenario that Luke presents to us that we have here. Tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. Isn't that amazing? Tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear Jesus. They're not just drawing near, but they have, they have smelt the bacon cooking early in the morning. They have got a whiff of grace floating through the air. Somehow, in some way, they have heard, rumor has it, that God receives sinners, that Christ would welcome them. There is a different narrative going on here, and they're coming in to hear. Don't you want more and more people to get a whiff of that? Are they getting a sense of that from Waterbrook Church? Are they feeling that at all in your life, your family, your friends, people that you care about. Listen to uh, Gar David Garland as he talks about these tax collectors. This is not accidental language. This is who's coming, but this is loaded and powerful language when Luke, when Jesus, sorry, when Luke describes what's going on here. The tax collectors were those who collected tolls, tariffs, impulse and customs. They were drawn from the ranks of those who were so desperate that they were willing to engage in a dis dishonorable profession to survive. So these are outsiders who have sort of lost so, so much lost an idea that they could be respected in the culture that they don't care if they're a tax collector. He writes, most took more than the official fees to make a living and developed a reputation for dishonesty. Uh, John the Baptist tells them to take no more than what was properly their due in Luke 3, 12, and 13. And the Pharisee in his prayer in Luke 18 in the temple lumps them together with robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Listen to what Garland says. The sinners could be apostate Jews 
who were not simply the wrong sort of people, but notorious and persistent lawbreakers who brought dishonor to their fellow Jews. They could comprise the godless who are presumed to be without hope. You want to put it another way, these in the Jewish culture are the irredeemable. These are the ones who have sinned too long, too far, too egregiously, that there's no grace for them. And there were laws in the Old Testament uh, under, the, under the Mosaic law that if you sinned, you died. That stain, that mark, that label was upon you. There's plenty of scriptures. They are those who would have been considered worthy of death. They are the adulterers who in the law are called to be stoned to death. They are the excessively greedy who rob their own fellow Jews. They are idolaters who have intermarried with idol worshipers or bowed the knee either to foreign gods or foreign oppressors. They are those who are on the long list of sins that render you unclean and outside the people of God. Prostitutes, Sabbath breakers, adulterers, blasphemers, murderers, kidnappers. By the way, Jesus says, all of us, if we've done that in our hearts, are just as guilty. Right? They are the irredeemable. And so what makes this passage so powerful and what Jesus is showing us here is that the people that we write off, God does not write off. Isn't that good news? The people we label as irredeemable are not irredeemable. Here's the good news. God is the God of the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth chance. If you've got breath in you today, you can come to God. No matter how far you've gone, how no, no matter how deeply you have sinned. We are the Gomers to Hosea, the prophet in Hosea chapter 6 that Gabe sang about earlier. And so in the Old Testament, God has Hosea marry Gomer because Gomer represents Israel. She is constantly wandering, constantly sinning, constantly breaking her vows, constantly being covenantly unfaithful. That's Israel. And so here's what the call is in Hosea after the love of God is announced, the forgiveness of God. Hosea 6, 1 to 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us. After two days he will revive us. And on the third day he will raise us up. Echoes of anything there, folks? that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Later in Hebrews 14, this exhortation, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you your words, return to the Lord, and say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with the bulls, with bulls, the vow of our lips. Hosea 14, 4, God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Friends, how has that anger been turned? In Jesus Christ, at the cross. How is God able to forgive us again and again and restore us? Only because he, Christ, has healed our apostasy through his faithfulness. Dying on the cross and obeying God perfectly in our place. So here's the good news. Listen to how 
Luke 15 begins, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. So that's what I'm going to invite you to do right now. Draw near and hear him right now. So if you came in this morning and you just feel broken, stained, sinful, unlovable, rejected by God, here's what I want you to do. Draw near and hear him. Hear Jesus. He loves you. He came for you. He delights in you. Your sins, though they be as scarlet, can be as white as snow. Uh, maybe, maybe you're someone who has been groaning because people you love have wandered away too far and been lost. And that pessimism has entered your heart and, and you've become cynical and critical. Let me just stop to you and say to you this morning, maybe parent, maybe you're a parent and your kids have wandered far away. Maybe you're a spouse and your spouse has wandered far off. I, this is what I just want to say to you. Draw near and hear Jesus. Hear him. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He is the God who forgives one time, two times, three times, four times, five times. He repeatedly forgives. He's tenacious in, in saving sinners when we're not. In church, maybe we've just pulled into our little fortress mentality. We've stopped looking at the world. Maybe we've listened to the culture and decided that because the culture is so lost, so blind, so dark, so difficult, so ugly in its, in its, in, in its perversion, that maybe we just need to shelter ourselves away from the culture. Stop, stop. Draw near and hear him. Because he has come that sinners might be set free. He has come to rescue the lost. We need to hear this. We need to be like these the example for us on one level in this text of Scripture are the tax collectors and the sinners. They're doing the right thing. They're drawing near and hearing Christ. If you've got someone you've been praying for, if you've got a world that you're discouraged over, hear Jesus above all the other voices, all the other noise that drowns us out. Secondly, let's look at not only this exciting scenario, but tied to it is an uh, exasperating scenario. So the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near and listening to Jesus. What are the Pharisees and the scribes doing? They're grumbling. That's what it says in verse 2. All the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're grumbling. That word grumble has echoes to the Old Testament, because what did Israel do in the wilderness? They grumbled. And why did they grumble? Because God's ways weren't their ways. God didn't do it their way, didn't do it when they wanted it. And so what these guys are doing, the Pharisees and the scribes, is they're reenacting the sin of the Old Testament again and again. That's what we do when we grumble against God. Why God this way? Why these people? After I've been working so hard, why would you be merciful to them? That sort of self-righteousness that gets in. They're grumbling against the God of grace. Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. When it says this, um, that, that Jesus, this man, isn't that a great line? This man receives and eats with them. The present tense in the Greek of receives and eats is a suggestion that this isn't just one time with Jesus. This is the regular habit of Jesus. 
that if you're going to find Jesus somewhere, he's likely going to be with the outcast, with the sinner, the lost, the needy. And, and for them, this was absolutely contradictory to their understanding of what redemption would look like, that if God got a hold of you, you would separate yourself. So they would have in their minds Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the path of sinners or stand in the, seat, or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and upon it he meditates. So we don't go there. We don't fellowship. Holiness is separation. They have pictures from the Old Testament of, of God's redemption calling them out of the nations. Listen to Isaiah 52, which is right before Isaiah. This is a tough question. What chapter comes after Isaiah 52? Very good. That's good. I just, this is an easy lesson for all of you. Isaiah 53, the great chapter of the suffering servant. In the chapter before, there's the story of God redeeming Israel and calling them out of the nations. And listen to what it says. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth, or break forth the, uh, together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Lord. So that, that's a great salvation passage. Rejoice, God is coming to save. Rejoice, God is coming to redeem. But then listen to this. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight. For the Lord God will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your guard. So the picture is God in front of them, God behind them, bringing them out. And they keep themselves pure and holy. And they look at Jesus and going, who are you with? But you see, they're getting the story uh, elements of redemption, but they're not getting the grand narrative from the whole Old Testament that God would come and redeem sinners. And this is what's going on. They're actually in light of their, they, they've got a Friday Edwards God. They don't have a God of mercy and salvation. And so they don't go after the lost. They don't go after the guilty. And so they don't shepherd the sheep. That's one of the complaints. So I want you to take your Bible and go to Ezekiel 34. Because what we see in Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Where the people, the shepherds, don't go after the people. I want you to see verse 4 in particular. But I want to read a little bit longer than that. So look at verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord, Ezekiel 34 one, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, should you not feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Listen to this verse. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became sh food for the wild beasts. That's his confrontation of them. You didn't go after them. You didn't seek them. You didn't find them. You didn't go after the least and the lost. This is contradictory. You sat there self-righteously to yourself. And Jesus said they were like, he saw the people, they were harassed and helpless like what? Sheep without a shepherd. 
So here's what Ezekiel, uh, what the prophet says in verse 11. This is what the Lord says of Ezekiel 34. Therefore the Lord says, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them from the peoples, gather them from the countries, will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines. See that feeding language? In all the inhabited places of the country, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel that shall be their grazing. They shall lay down in in good grazing land and on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Does that remind you of a psalm at all? The 23rd Psalm, right? He will lead me to green pastures and beside still waters and restore my soul. That's the shepherd. God says, I'm going to come and do that. You know what Jesus is doing? That's what he's doing. He's feeding them. He's celebrating with them. He's drawing them near. Philip Reichen says this, These outcasts were the lost sheep of Israel. The very people that Israel's shepherds were supposed to rescue and the people that he himself had come to save. Therefore, sinners and tax collectors were just the people that Jesus ought to be eating with. And they ought to be the people that we are eating with. Craig Blomberg, in his book, Contagious Holiness, Jesus Meals with Sinners, writes this. He says, the unifying theme that comes from these passages is one that may be called contagious holiness. Jesus regularly associates with the various sorts of sinners on whom the pious in this culture frown, in his culture frowned. But his uh, association is never an end in itself. Implicitly and explicitly, he's calling people to change their ways, follow them as master. But unlike so many in this world, unlike so many cultures throughout the history of the world, Jesus does not assume that he'll be defiled by associating with corrupt people. Rather, his purity can rub off them and change them for the better. Cleanliness, he believes, is even more catching than uncleanliness, uncleanness. Morality, more influential than immorality. So, he, so here's the great news. Jesus coming in here and saying, I'm not going to catch sin from them. They're going to catch righteousness from me. So he goes to the cross and he lives a perfect life. That's, wh- that's what's true of us. We're not righteous here today because we've cleaned ourselves up enough to come to church. We're righteous because we've been associated with the righteous one by faith. And he in his holiness, and he in his cleanliness, cleanliness is contagious. Aren't you glad Jesus is contagious? With mercy, through mercy, with righteousness and holiness. That's why Jesus is associating. And so that brings the question to you and I, you know, what bothers us? You know, what what really bothers us about other people? Is Is it their sinfulness? My dear friends, aren't you glad that God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Is it possible that if we allow the sins of others and the world to keep us from going on mission for God in the name of Jesus Christ, that we might in our little cocoon start to have dreams at night or problems or anxieties at night because we realize that if, even if we look out there or we look in here, it's a mess. It's a desperate mess. But here's the good news, folks. Whether you're a self-righteous Pharisee and a hypocrite or whether you're a tax collector, a prostitute, and a sinner, Jesus loves to forgive sinners. That's what he's come to do. 
and thus these two parables. I'm going to just summarize these two parables. So this is what I call the explosive testimony of Jesus. <laughs> God sends his son into the world to report on the court of heaven and to transform the ideas, the perspectives of the people. Jesus comes and gives this testimony. I want you to know that in heaven they are partying and celebrating every single sinner that repents. You don't get what's going on up there if you think that God is grumpy like you, if heaven is grumbling like you. So Jesus told them two parables, parable of the sheep and the parable of the coin. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, the summary statement over the parable of the sheep, as I tell you, there is more joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I believe Jesus is tongue-in-cheek here. Think what he's saying when he tells the shepherd going after the one lost sheep and leaving the 99 behind. I believe when he's doing that, he's saying there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 who don't have any need of repentance. Because any of us without need of repentance, right? There's more joy in heaven over that. In Luke 15.10, about the coin. So I tell you, there is what? Joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God is more excited about one sinner that repents than 99 self-righteous people who don't think they need God. Hear me today. Is that not good news? Isn't that glorious news for every single one of us? N.T. Wright says, in the story of the sheep and the stories of the sheep and the coin, the punchline in each case depends on the Jewish belief that the two halves of God's creation, heaven and earth, were meant to fit together and be in harmony with one another. If you discover what's going on in heaven, you'll discover what was meant to be on earth. That's why we pray God's kingdom will come on what? Earth as it is in Heaven, as far as the legal experts and Pharisees were concerned, the closest you could get to heaven was in the temple, and the temple required strict purity from the priests, and the closest that non-priests could get to copying heaven was to maintain a similarly strict purity in every aspect of life. But listen to this. Now Jesus was declaring that heaven was having a great noisy party Every time a single sinner saw the light and began to follow God's way, if earth dwellers want to copy the life of heaven, they'd have a party too. That's what Jesus was doing. Jesus says, I'm only doing what my father's doing. Why, Jesus, are you sitting here celebrating with sinners? Because that's what my father would do. This is what my father has sent me into the world. God loves to see sinners. My father loves to see sinners saved. So I want to just summarize some key principles I want you really clearly to hear that are repeated in both of these parables. Truths that we need to understand. Number one, what are we to draw from this? These sinners and tax collectors are precious in the sight of God. He considers them his own. Isn't that great news? Like the Sheep is precious. He leaves everything and goes, gets it. Like the coin, so one commentator says this could be part of her dowry. It's what she's been left with. This one coin is everything to her. What we're being told here is that these sinners matter deeply to God. So whatever the narrative you've told yourself, if you've told yourself the narrative that God can't love me, that I can't be accepted, that I'm too stained, I'm too dirty, it's been too bad, it's too dark, my dear friends, that's not a narrative from heaven. That's a narrative from the pit of hell. 
It's the liar telling you, keeping you from running to the Father who's run towards you. Secondly, these owners passionately prioritize finding those valuable items they've lost. The shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. The Bible says here, the woman diligently searches until she finds it. The owners passionately prioritize getting these lost, finding them. That's your Father in heaven. How do we know that God has passionately prioritized our salvation? Because it's the one thing he has made, the whole of the Bible, the narrative of the story of the Bible about why he sent his son into the world to come and save lost sinners. He has passionately prioritized. And Isaiah, I always like Isaiah 7, 14, where it says the zeal, or where is it, 6, 9, somewhere in there. The ze- no, I'm going to get it wrong. Isaiah 9, 6, there it is. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. If you think God is half-hearted, he's not. He has made it his priority. Here's the third thing. The seekers are persevering in both parables. Neither one give up until they find the sheep or they find the coin. I just want to stop and say to some of you, you know, you lose your steam sometime. You've been parenting and kids have been wandering. You've been struggling with relationships. You've been trying to be a witness at your work or your school. And you just think, how long? Aren't you glad that God didn't give up on you? You think I've sinned one time, two times, three times, four times. God is the God of the second, third, fourth, and fifth. He has persevered. That's the point of Hosea and Gomer. The prophet Israel has wandered and wandered and wandered, yet Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Fourthly, the finders want to party and feast to celebrate one lost sinner more than 99 who are in no need of deliverance. They feast, they eat because the lost treasures are found. So you and I just need to realize the greatest joy that you see going on in heaven is the rejoicing around the redeemed being brought home, the lost being found and rescued and being saved. They celebrate. Shouldn't we do that? That's why we need to be out there seeking because when they do come home, there's no greater joy. No greater joy. And so we have a couple of weeks when we cut the hole in the ice and we have the baptism. <laughs> we ought to have a celebration, right? Young and old coming to Christ. God still saves and cares and redeems and, and pursues. What great and glorious news. And finally, The celebrators are pictures of heaven in both passages. The celebration, Jesus' feasting is because he knows in heaven there's a greater feasting, a greater celebrating. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner repents. The angels in heaven are rejoicing. Do you realize the balcony of heaven has angels leaning over it and going, go, go, yes, yes, yes. We have no idea the level of joy and celebration in heaven. These parables are giving us a picture of heaven. Again, N.T. Wright says, imagine the impact on this, on, rep- on, on the repentant sinners who heard these stories. They didn't have to earn God's love or Jesus' respect. He loved coming, looking for them and celebrated finding them. And what Jesus did was what God was doing. Jesus' actions on earth correspond exactly to God's love in the heavenly realms. Jesus and the Father are one. Absolute agreement. So let me um, ask a couple questions of you today. Let me um, 
speak to those of you who came today feeling a thousand miles from God. I mean, between you and God, you know what's going on in your heart. You know what's going on in your life. You hear the lie that you're unredeemable or you've sinned too many times. Let me ask you questions out of these parables. Number one, do you understand how precious you are to God? Despite how you feel about yourself and your sin. You need to believe Jesus. Not that narrative that's been spinning at 3 a.m. You need to hear the eternal narrative of a God who loves sinners. Do you understand how precious you are to God? Secondly, do you realize that God would give anything to bring you home to himself? How do I know that? He gave his son. He gave his son. He who did not spare his own son. How will he not long with him freely give us all things? Do you know that God will redeem the suffering in your life, the injustice in your life. God will redeem everything in your life to bring you home so that you never have to endure that anymore. The grief, the pain, everything you'll use. He'll turn it for good. He'll, he'll use that misery in your life to, to make you secure forever through faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a good God? He's the hound of heaven. He gave his son. Do you realize that God is patient and persevering? And even in this text today, he's calling you again to himself. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. This is the Father calling you. He loves you. His son died for you. Today, hear him. Isn't he patient? Is he, is he just patient with me? Or is he patient with a few of you? He's remarkably patient. And today, if you hear his voice, come to him. Do you realize that in heaven... The angels and the elders and everyone break forth in joyful celebration. If you say in your heart right now, yes to Jesus, I wish I could pull back the curtain of heaven. You would have no doubt about his love, no doubt about his joy, no doubt about his acceptance, all in Jesus Christ. My dear friends, it's that level of joy. In heaven, Jesus is being clear. Why am I celebrating and eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because I know that's what makes heaven explode with joy. Let me ask uh, Waterbrook. Those of you who are Christians, maybe those of you who have lost your joy, maybe some of you who have lost sight of your first calling to love and reach sinners. Do lost sinners matter to you like they do to God? Are they precious in your sight? Maybe that's what you need to pray. Let me see people the way you see people. Let me value people the way you value them. Is it Waterbrook your passionate priority to seek lost sinners. Your passionate priority. It's God's passionate priority to seek lost sinners. Is it your? Is it our? It's not our passionate priority to build a building. The only reason we build the building is to send people out of the building so that they might seek lost sinners and make disciples together, right? 
It's the only reason we're asking this. We believe we have a holy calling, but the calling is to passionately make it a priority. Is it your passionate priority? Thirdly, are you willing to persevere? You're willing to persevere. Some of you, your family members are far away. They've been far away for a while. They're not hearing you. They're not responding to you. Are you willing to persevere? Are you willing to hang in there long like God has hung in there with you? Are you willing to persevere until you get home or they get home? They did not give up until they found them. And finally, don't you want to party and rejoice with the angels in heaven? That God has saved by his grace through Jesus Christ. Don't you want a taste of that? Don't you want to be there on that day when together we stream in, wiping the sweat off our brow, and <laughs> he's wiping the tears from our eyes, and we enter into that everlasting joy and rest where we will rejoice on that day. It's a battle one on one heart to keep our heart in the right place. But this parable is saying there is incredible joy in heaven. That joy can be yours in Jesus Christ. So friends, we need to pray for our hearts, but I just want to extend those two offers. One, if you don't know the joy of being forgiven, come to God today. Number two, if you know what it's like, go for God today. Make known the greatest news in the world. May God use us. Let's pray together. Our God and Father in heaven, thank you that you are an unrelenting Savior. We thank you, O oh God, that you pursue sinners. We thank you, dear God, that you pulled back in these parables the curtain which unveiled who you really are. Oh, that you delight to forgive sinners. Oh, that you love to feast with sinners. Oh, that you lay down a table in front of sinners and say, come, feast with me through my son. You can be forgiven and accepted, not on the merits of anything you've done, but only because of my grace. And so, Father, if there's anyone here today that has never surrendered and come home, may they come home right now to Jesus. If they've been resisting, if they've been discouraged and disillusioned. Let them turn all that away and just hear your voice calling them in Christ's home. And Father, for all of us discouraged and maybe even grumbling Christians, give us a fresh view of what the kingdom of God really is like, that we might live for your praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.